Welcome to the Talks on Law MCLE podcast. Interviews with leading attorneys, professors, and judges on important and thought-provoking legal topics. And now, for the interview. Today, we're joined remotely by Professor Michael Gerard, a leading climate change scholar and a professor at Columbia Law School. Professor, welcome to Talks on Law. Pleasure to be talking to you, Joe. We're talking about deep decarbonization. Is this a term, uh, a term of art? What does it mean? It means drastically reducing the amount of greenhouse gases that are emitted into the atmosphere. Uh, at one time, we thought of thought about an eighty percent reduction. We're now looking at a net one hundred percent reduction in greenhouse gases. Yeah, maybe you can break down a little bit of the numbers. What what really is contributing in the United States, for example? Passenger vehicles and SUVs, uh, uh, as well as trucks and buses and other vehicles, all add up uh, to the largest single source of greenhouse gas emissions in the United States. And uh, it's, you know, from burning gasoline and diesel fuel. Now, the second largest uh, source of greenhouse gas emissions is generating electricity, uh, mostly from coal and natural gas. So today we'll be talking about getting down to net zero or reducing the footprint of the two leading sectors. Uh, What are some of the high level approaches to getting it down? Are we talking about new technology, greater efficiency? Well, they're generally thought to be um, uh, four basic pillars of deep decarbonization. The first is energy efficiency. Um, uh, the second is decarbonizing the grid, so stop burning fossil fuels to make electricity. The third is electrification, mo- taking current fossil fuel uses and running them from clean electricity. And the fourth is carbon sequestration or removal, trying to capture the CO2 before it gets into the atmosphere or draw it down from the atmosphere. Do you ever suspect that maybe carbon sequestration might solve the whole problem? No. Uh, there's no way that uh, the carbon sequestration will be enough to solve the whole problem. It's inconceivable that we'll be able to do enough of it. Um, but what we do need is um, the first three pillars. We need efficiency and electrification and cleaning up the grid on a massive scale. And if we do that, we also need to do a whole lot of carbon sequestration. And if we do all of that, uh, maybe we'll uh, achieve our climate objectives. Let's talk about electricity power. How do we make the transition to large-scale renewable energy? Um, so we already the technologies already exist. Uh, we already have existing large-scale wind farms, although they're mostly in Europe and Asia. About the technologies exist, and they're beginning to be introduced into the U.S. We already have large-scale solar farms. Uh, we need a whole lot more of both. Uh, We also need energy storage because the wind doesn't always blow and the sun doesn't always shine. So we need ways to store the electricity so we'll have it when we need it, when it's dark or when the wind isn't blowing. We also need a lot more transmission lines because many of the new renewable power plants are going to be located in rural areas many miles from where the power is needed. Uh, But but these, these technologies absolutely exist. They're improving. The cost is is plummeting, uh, but but it's not a situation where we're dreaming of something and it doesn't exist yet. You mentioned Europe as a 
as perhaps a, a leader in this space, why isn't the United States caught up with the, the latest technology? Well, for a long time, it was a lot cheaper to be making electricity from fossil fuels than to make it from solar or wind. But in the last several years, the cost of solar and wind has plummeted dramatically. Um, there are um, some subsidies for solar and wind, but they've tended to go to start and stop with congressional action, and that has impeded investment. There continue to be a lot of subsidies for fossil fuels. Um, uh, we don't have um, strong enough laws to inhibit the use of fossil fuels to generate electricity. Uh, uh, fossil fuel power plants get an enormous subsidy in being able to dump their pollution into the air for free. Mm -hmm. You know, in the absence of a carbon tax or a pollution tax, that's all free waste disposal, and that greatly um, reduces the costs of. Of building, uh, of, of, of running these kinds of plants. Uh, we've had weak regulations all around, and we haven't had enough incentives to build wind and solar. So when you look at the countries that were a little quicker to get to mass scale, were they relying on large government subsidies to get there? Or were they just quicker to take advantage of this lower cost technology? Um, some of them relied on, on mass subsidies, which ultimately were often paid by the electricity rate payers. That was the case with, with Germany. Um, uh, others put more government uh, money into it, and uh, they had faster approval processes. A lot of, uh, a lot of this is, uh, is offshore um, around Europe, and we have offshore, offshore wind farms. And, and so, so far, the U.S. only has one very small offshore wind farm off Block Island in Rhode Island, but uh, New York is getting ready to build several very big ones off Long Island. Are these more efficient because more consistent wind can be found you know, over the ocean? Uh, several reasons. First, you don't have neighbors right there who are fighting the plant. Um, uh, secondly, the wind blows more steadily over the ocean than it does over the land. Uh, third, over the ocean, you can uh, put much uh, longer, higher turbines, which are much more efficient. And so the combination of all of these things has made offshore wind very attractive. Well, let's talk about some of the legal issues involved in large-scale renewable. One of the most important is citing where, where to put these, these large projects. So there's a massive amount of federal land, especially in the Western states. Uh, and a lot of it is suitable for large-scale wind and solar. Uh, under the Obama administration, there were many steps taken to speed up the approval process uh, to to allow these to happen. That slowed down under Trump, but I'm certain that it's uh, going to be picking up again um, uh, very significantly under Biden. On, on private land, uh, the developers really haven't had a lot of difficulty uh, finding land because the owners of the suitable land are often very pleased to rent it to for wind or solar. But you often find neighbors who don't like it and who oppose it. And sometimes you have uh, electric utilities that rely on fossil fuels that don't like the competition and have found ways to oppose the construction of this. Uh, because of all this opposition, I helped found a, an organization called the Renewable Energy Legal Defense Initiative, which provides pro bono legal assistance to communities and individuals that want wind and solar, uh, uh, but that are facing local opposition. Oh, fascinating. Maybe you can share a couple of examples of cases that your nonprofit 
has worked on, you know, what are some of the complaints that you've seen brought against these projects? So we're working on a, a, a project right now off the Hamptons uh, where it, this wind farm would be so far offshore that it's not visible uh, from the land. However, the cable has to come in. And there are some rich folks in a hamlet called Wainscot uh, that don't like the, con- the temporary construction activity that would be caused by building this cable. And so they're uh, challenging the project. We're representing uh, a group called win with wind of uh, residents out there who want the project to go forward. So it's currently undergoing hearings before the uh, New York State Public Service Commission. Would the cable even be visible once it's it's fully installed? No, it'll be underground. It's just these, these people don't like the fact that there'll be, uh, you know, construction going on near their multi-million dollar homes for a few months. What other legal arguments are you seeing brought against these type of projects? Well, we often see the objection that it'll kill birds, and some birds do get killed by wind turbines, but far fewer than are killed by um, going flying into office buildings or um, or uh, cell towers or killed by cats. Um, actually, wind turbines are very a very minor part of bird mortality, even if they weren't. Climate change is even worse for uh, for birds. In the long term, you'll have a whole lot of bird species go extinct because of climate change. And so uh, we may have a short uh, a trade-off between killing a few birds now and a whole lot of birds later. Uh, so but there are arguments raised under the Endangered Species Act and related laws that we shouldn't be killing uh, these birds. Have there been developments in wind uh, turbine technology to reduce uh, the mortality of birds? Uh, yes. Uh, the scientists have developed ways to paint the wind turbines so that they're less attractive to birds or have special kind of lighting. Uh, in some instances, you you turn off the turbine during uh, a bird migration. Uh, there are a number of techniques that are available to greatly reduce the impact of uh, on bird mortality. That's wind. What about solar? Are there complaints do people bring when it comes to just setting up a field of solar panels? You know, there are some people who don't like to look at big uh, uh, arrays of solar panels. One of the issues is that in some places they cut down trees and people don't like cutting down the trees and there are trade-offs involved there. But in, in the in the Western deserts, there are some very large solar arrays that have been built. There is a concern that, you know, even though it's the desert, there are some species that live in the desert. It may not be good for them. Um, And uh, certain wind, I'm sorry, certain solar technologies are bad for birds because of the way they reflect the the sunlight, but we're no longer using those technologies. A lot of it is about land use. A lot of it is about visual impacts. Let's talk about scale. What is actually needed to accomplish you know, these ambitious goals. Right now, there are about 1,100 gigawatts of uh, clean power uh, generating plants in the in the uh, United States, renewable power plants. Uh, a big nuclear power plant is about one gigawatt. So we have about 1,100 gigawatts of, of wind and solar and hydro. Um, we're going to need to increase that to about 3,000 gigawatts uh, because we need to shut down all the coal plants and most of the 
natural gas plants, and we're going to need to be generating even more electricity because we need to electrify motor vehicles and we need to electrify a lot of uh, building heating. So we need to triple the amount of renewables we have. That means we need between now and about 2050 to be adding uh, about 300 gigawatts a year uh, which is a massive amount, which is much more than has ever been built. So it's a huge construction project. It's also a huge job creation opportunity. What about the, the sites of these renewable projects? Do they need to be located near the communities they served and serve? In other words, must they be spread out throughout the, the nation or, or can they be concentrated as well? Well, they don't need to be right near the cities uh, where it is being used, uh, but you need transmission lines to carry the electricity from where it's being generated to where it's needed. And so it's often also local opposition to building transmission lines. But uh, we do expect we'll have some areas of the country that will have a lot of these um, uh, wind farms, particularly off the Atlantic uh, uh, coast. And there are areas in the Midwest that have a whole lot of wind resources. So under some proposals, we would build uh, a huge amount of, 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 uh, of wind in, in Kansas and Nebraska and Iowa and, uh, and other places and then have the, have the power go out from there. But uh, you don't want the power to have to travel too far because you lose some of the electricity is, is lost during that, that period. So it's not as if we can... Uh, concentrated all in one or two states. It does have to be spread out to a certain extent. Are we going to see a wind boom in on the East Coast and in Kansas? Yes, uh, I am expecting a wind boom. And on the land, uh, a lot of it goes on, on farms, and the farmers love it because it's compatible. It, uh, the, the, the wind turbine itself, you know, the pillar doesn't, uh, doesn't take up much land. And so they can still farm while they are getting extra income from allowing the wind turbine to be there. Um, so finding uh, uh, farms where the farmers are willing to have wind turbines there is not very difficult. Uh, solar is a bigger problem because right now the solar takes up a lot of land and there there are developing technologies to allow crops to be grown under solar. And I think that's one direction we need to go in in the future. Shade-grown coffee underneath a solar plant? Right. There's a various, various plants that can grow, grow under the panels and you space them out enough so that enough sunlight gets there. Professor, what about buildings? How do they fit in? Uh, so uh, buildings are one of the largest uh, consumers of electricity and burners of oil and gas for heating. Um, the great bulk of the buildings that will be around in 2050 already exist. And so it, it's easy enough to acquire all new buildings to be uh, all electric and efficient. The bigger challenge is retrofitting the tens of millions of buildings that already exist and that will still be around for decades. Um, in order to fully decarbonize, we need to convert the heating uh, uh, from uh, oil and gas to electricity, and we need to make them much more energy efficient. That is a huge financing challenge. Uh, homeowners are not going to want to spend uh, $10,000 on their house to make it more efficient or to uh, electrify it, so we're going to need to find other ways to pay for that. Do you envision some type of tax deduction or or credits towards uh, energy efficiency? 
Uh, yeah, we already have very have some limited uh, energy efficiency credits. We need more of that. I think that we may need uh, direct tax subsidies uh, uh, for that. We may put it on uh, electric and natural gas bills and spread the cost around, but we need ways to, to finance it. How about you, Professor? Is your is your home energy efficient? Yeah, we had an energy efficiency audit done, and we cleaned it up. Um, and we also and we did look into putting solar on the roof, but the angles aren't right, and it wouldn't work. However, we do have a little place on Long Island, and we did put solar on the roof out there, and also did energy efficiency out there. And I imagine that's also a growing industry in terms of. Uh, of job creation and economic uh, stimulus. There are already far more jobs in wind and solar than there are in coal, for example. There's something like 400,000 jobs in wind and solar in the United States and about 70,000 jobs in coal. Um, And obviously, and coal mining employment is going down, whereas wind and solar employment are going way up. Professor, we talked a little bit about offshore with your Hamptons example. You know, what about the laws on that? How does someone get the rights to build an offshore wind farm? So the land is, the the offshore areas are owned by the federal government. The Bureau of Ocean Energy Management, which is within the Department of the Interior, is the agency that controls that. Uh, Under the Trump administration, they really slowed down the permitting for these um, uh, projects. Under the Biden administration, that's going to pick back up. Uh, but uh, there's there's federal jurisdiction over that. Then the cables come in, and during the first three miles or so offshore, that's within state jurisdiction. Uh, and so the states have to grant that authority in addition to the Army Corps of Engineers. And then when it gets to land, that's largely a matter of local zoning to, to allow the land-based facilities. A quick stop for those listening for attorney CLE credit. The code for this interview is 92291. Again, that's 92291. And now back to the interview. How do these actually work? Do you bid for or purchase the rights to harvest wind for a period of time? Are these 10-year, 20-year, 50-year grants? Uh, so the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management uh, holds auctions uh, to lease the, the offshore land. And uh, on land, um, in federal land, the Bureau of Land Management, which is a different part of the Department of the Interior, holds uh, auctions for the use of, uh, of federal land uh, for these kinds of facilities. You mentioned to me that there's only one real example of an offshore wind farm and that's in Rhode Island. How was that project able to succeed? So it had local support. The residents of Lock Island um, uh, were able to cut a deal that it lowered their electricity rates uh, in order to um, have this uh, small wind farm off their shores. So they were happy with it. And uh, they were able to get the federal approvals and, and move on and, and get the project built. We're about to see, I think, a very large amount of new wind farm development off the coast of Long Island. Uh, We're seeing it off Massachusetts and New Jersey as well. All those states are uh, greatly encouraging offshore wind, and there are a lot of projects that are getting underway. And it seems like it's all intertwined. New York had passed legislation requiring a a transition to renewable and clean energy. 
And then at the same time, these technologies, the, the, the unit costs are going down. Uh, the unit costs are going way down and the need for it is going way up as we further recognize the importance of moving away from fossil fuels to generate electricity. And as we're going to need even more electricity because of the necessary conversion to electric cars. You know, some have argued that we should make use of unwanted or even contaminated lands, put them to use to make uh, this clean wind and solar energy. Well, we certainly should. And there are EPA programs and other programs to encourage that. There just isn't enough of it. Uh, we don't have it's enough. It's probably a good thing that there's not enough contaminated land. Right, right. Um, uh, but there, there isn't enough unused contaminated land to satisfy a large percentage of the need for land for renewables. Well, let's talk about some of the, the federal laws involved. Uh, what is NEPA? NEPA is the National Environmental Policy Act. It's the statute that requires preparation of an environmental impact statement for any major federal action that could have a significant effect on the environment. Is this used to uh, encourage uh, renewables or, or as a roadblock for carbon emitting technologies? Uh, sometimes it, it, it's a roadblock for any number of projects and people who don't like a particular project some kind sometimes sue and say that there hasn't been enough compliance with with NEPA. They either say that an environmental impact statement should have been prepared, but it wasn't, or one was prepared, but it's not thorough enough. And so you see a lot of litigation under NEPA. And what about on the other end? Have, have there been federal laws meant to encourage this type of uh, renewable development or the acceleration of renewables? In 2016, Congress, as part of a large transportation appropriations bill, uh, called, passed something called the FAST Act, which was designed to help speed up the approval of lots of different kinds of infrastructure projects, uh, including renewables, but also fossil and highways and all manner of, of, um, of infrastructure projects. Uh, not nearly full use of it has been made, uh, but uh, it has a lot of potential to help speed up the federal approval process. How about at the state level? Uh, what have you seen that's particularly innovative or significant in terms of state laws in this space? Well, in early 2020, New York State adopted a new law to set up an expedited process for siting of, of renewable energy facilities to go along with the state climate change law. Uh, so the regulations for that are just now being put in place. We'll see how it works, but the theory of it is that it's going to uh, speed up um, approval of wind and solar and Im uh, impose sort of uniform conditions on mitigating their environmental impacts rather than them having to be negotiated on a project-by-project tra basis. But we're very hopeful that this New York law will be effective. And one, you know, one state that may be a surprise for some of our viewers is Texas. Texas has been a leader, you know, Texas known for oil and gas has also been a leader in renewables. Uh, Texas is uh, far and away the leader in wind. Uh, Texas has much more wind uh, energy developed than any other country, uh, than any other state. Uh, they did that partly by an innovative program to sort of pre-build the transmission lines. 
Because one of the big problems is if you're building a wind farm in a rural area, you need the transmission lines to take the power to where people need it. So uh, Texas developed a program to pre-build them. Uh, and, and so they're there. And it's like a field of dreams. Build it and they will come. Uh, these these wind developers um, um, said, okay, I'm going to build my wind farm here because I have a way to get my power to market. It's been marvelously effective. And it's not because of any ideological commitment to fighting climate change in Texas, um, uh, which is, is mostly known as a fossil fuel state. But a lot of landowners realized that they could make a lot of money by making their land available for wind. And uh, it became very effective. While we're talking about laws, maybe we should touch on uh, the species protection laws, like the Endangered Species Act. How does that uh, impact uh, renewable development? Yeah, some of those have gotten in the way and have been used as uh, tools by project opponents. Um, during the Obama administration, um, techniques were developed to have regional assessments of species and also of other environmental impacts so that a an environmental review and, and species review can be uh, conducted over a broad area and therefore individual projects that go within that area can be approved more quickly. I think that too is something we'll see pick up under Biden. Let's transition to transport. This has now become the leading contributor of carbon dioxide to the atmosphere. Uh, what are the, the key areas where laws can make a big difference? Well, the most important thing is to have uh, increasingly stringent fuel economy and emission standards uh, on motor vehicles and eventually transmission uh, to all electric for all passenger motor vehicles, including SUVs. That's a transition that we absolutely need to make. So we do have uh, federal emission standards. Uh, what are those? And do we expect an acceleration in the next year or two? I expect that the Biden administration is going to uh, revoke the actions that the Trump administration took to weaken the standards. We'll make them stronger and then we'll make them considerably stronger. But I think we'll also see negotiations between the Biden administration and the auto industry. I mean, some of the big, big automakers, including General Motors, have said they see the future as electric uh, they understand that we need to be moving in that direction. So they may be ready for an accelerated program because it's getting them to their their sales targets or their sales goals uh, quicker. That's right. And they want all their competitors to be subject to the same requirements. And so if we had uniform standards that applied to all the automakers and anybody who wants to make or sell cars in the U.S. needs to meet certain standards, I think that most of the auto industry will go along with that. Um, there was some of that in 2010. Uh, there was an agreement reached uh, in conjunction with the uh, Obama administration's bailout of the auto industry. And I think we'll, uh, we'll see uh, under Biden, a lot of serious discussions uh, with the auto industry and also with the state of California, which has its own authorities here, to come up with a, a unified and accelerated move toward electrification. It's interesting how you, you mentioned that the auto industry may not actually be a roadblock. We, we also spoke with a professor on a maritime law expert who, who mentioned how shipping manufacturers are also relatively ahead of the curve because they want to make sure the boats that they build or the fleets that they purchase can can stand the test of time and can meet increasingly strict standards. 
Uh, that's right. And, and Maersk, which is the world's largest shipping company, has pledged uh, to uh, go to a much uh, cleaner uh, fleet in the coming decades. So I think everybody recognizes that this is the direction we're going in. While we are still using gasoline vehicles, it's good to reduce the carbon content of the gasoline, and that can be done by putting in uh, biofuels. Uh, so a renewable fuel standard is another way that the greenhouse gas emissions are reduced. Now, there are controversies here because the use of uh, corn-based ethanol, uh, which is with the current focus, has its own environmental impacts, and it also takes away some land from food production. Uh, but there are more advanced biofuels that are now under development. Additionally, it's going to be very hard to get um, to have electric airplanes that go a long distance. So with uh, with airplanes, there's a great deal of focus on use of biofuels as one way of reducing their greenhouse gas impact. Yeah, how do we reduce the carbon footprint of air travel? The technology just doesn't seem quite there when it comes to an electric jet engine. Are we looking at uh, a transition towards at least renewable jet fuels? Uh, yes, there is a good deal of movement uh, of research now, some of it led by the U.S. Navy on renewable jet fuel and, and uh, other ways of, of having a renewable energy component in, in, in aviation fuel. Uh, there's also work on more efficient engines, more uh, uh, energy saving flight patterns and other methods. And, and one thing we don't know is what are the long-term impacts of the pandemic on air travel? We know the short-term impact has been a, a very severe decline in air travel. We've also seen that uh, we've all learned that a lot of, uh, of meetings that we used to do in person, like this interview, uh, can be done online. We'll see what the long-term impact of all of that is on the volume of air traffic. And, you know, who knows what the long-term impact of the pandemic will be on mass transit, but maybe we could quickly touch on that. Well, in the first place, there's a lot of concern that many people will be reluctant to get on crowded trains and buses uh, unless the pandemic, unless the virus has been completely brought under control. Uh, but beyond that, the um, the existing mass transit systems are hemorrhaging money because their ridership has, has declined drastically. Um, building new mass transit lines is extraordinarily expensive. I think it'll be a while before we see a lot of focus on that, although building light rail and expanding bus routes is much less expensive. But but one element ultimately in reducing transit emissions, of course, is, is to reduce vehicle miles traveled. And, and that's a function both of improving mass transit and having denser land development so people don't have to travel as far. Uh, but uh, that tends to have very long lead times. It takes a long time to change land use patterns. Well, we've been in a world where the concept of uh, net zero carbon emissions has, has seemed like a, a lofty and unattainable dream. Uh, what do you see going forward? Do we have real hope of deep decarbonization in our near future? It is a, a steep mountain to climb. Um, it's going to be very expensive, but the costs of not climbing that mountain are much higher. Uh, the costs of, of uncontrolled climate change will be horrific. And so if society behaves rationally and picks the lowest net cost long-term uh, solutions, we will have a tremendous devotion to um, 
a, a, a tremendous uh, development with, uh, with clean energy. Uh, Professor Gerard, thank you for your time, and we'll keep an eye out for your upcoming scholarship on carbon law. Thank you very much. For more legal explainers and interviews with the titans of law, visit TalksOnLaw.com. If you're earning MCLE for this interview, you can enter your confirmation code at TalksOnLaw.com slash podcast to get your certificate. Join us again soon for more cutting-edge interviews on the Talks on Law MCLE podcast.